Open your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 21. We're going to continue and maybe finish today our brief look at the day that is and the day that is to come. They're important for us to know about things that are going on around us, if and how they relate to biblical prophecy, and what should we learn and what should we do in light of that. We're going to deal with the word watch a little bit today. We're told to watch. In Luke 21 and verse 34, he said, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unawares, because it is coming. For as a snare, it shall come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch you, therefore, because it's coming. And pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The key word in our study this morning is to watch. Because that's what we are commanded to do by the Lord in light of the warning. The hour we live in, I do believe is the hour of the end. And I'll try to point out many things that point to that clearly this morning. Now, you'll need to lick your finger. We're going to look at a lot of verses of Scripture today. And I mean, I want you to see it yourself. And uh, we may have to hurry and not spend enough time on each of these. But I want you to see the number, maybe 12 or 15 verses this morning that I want you to look at yourself. So we don't have time to linger and make a lot of Warnings, But remember the words snare and unawares. The day shall come like a snare on those who are not paying attention. You and I are to pray because we have been warned specifically. It's been pointed out to us. We have been shown. We become aware of what it says about that day. Whether it looks like that day is coming or not, it is coming. And he says you make sure that you're accounted worthy to escape all that's coming, you really don't want to be here. And you really don't want to go through what's going to happen on this earth as God begins to judge it. And the earth begins to reel to and fro under great and heavy judgments on the whole earth. Would you look briefly at Revelation 3 and verse 3? Here's what God has to say, what Jesus said to a church that was not paying attention or to individuals who are not paying attention, maybe just satisfied with being religious, being in a religious atmosphere, a religious environment, but not really paying attention, seeing what's happening, but not doing much about it, not taking it to heart or making preparations to deal with it. Here's what he said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I shall come on thee as a thief. And you shall know what hour I will come upon you. This is what happens to people who will not watch. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen without you being aware of it. You could have been, but you will not be. It'll happen at a time that is just devastating. So it is important for us to major this morning on the word watch. Pay attention. Look at what's going on in the world. Think about what you see. What does this mean? Or when great things are beginning to happen on this earth or tragic things happen or peculiar things happen, what does it mean or is there any biblical significance to it? What should it be? Now, we've seen so far that in the last days there's going to be perilous times, there's going to be moral filth, and there's going to be political unrest and all of those kind of things. We see that all the time. We see it in our community, and we see it in people's lives that we know and have known. Last week, we dealt with what should we do, what should a Christian do for that, and we saw in Joshua chapter 1, three or four things that we mentioned there in Joshua 1 about being strong, being courageous, and so forth. In this way, we prepare ourselves. We know it's coming, just like Joshua knew he was going to lead a million people into a land they'd never been in before. 
a land which loomed very large and uncertain, and the people were not great mighty warriors, and they were going to face great mighty warriors, giants, iron chariots, fortified cities, great walled areas that they had no experience in fighting. They were been slaves for 400 years. And God told Joshua, said, now you're going to give this people the land. You're going to lead them across there. You're going to divide to these people their inheritance. Only be strong and very courageous. And so in light of what's coming, in light of what we hear and all the threats in the world and this is going to happen and boy, this is coming on and there's a great this and a great oh boy. You and I have to look not at circumstances and fear them and pale before them, but we're to look at the promises that God has made to us. Promises that work whether there's a famine or plenty. God's word will sustain us and keep us. And that's what we must major on. This is what we must stay with. Now, first of all, let's look at some of these signs, some of the obvious signs. Turn to Matthew 24. These are the ones that Jesus gave us. Biblical revelations of the time that is coming so we can be aware of it. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming? Notice, and of the end of the world. Now, he's talking to them and they're asking him about a time that doesn't even involve them. They could have said, well, you're going to come back in a later time. It doesn't matter to us because that doesn't affect us and doesn't apply to us. So what, what does it matter? But they asked that question. It's recorded in the Bible for our sakes, and Jesus answered it for our sakes so that every generation that would ever follow him from this time on would be aware of what he said about what to look forward to or what to take note of when it happens that this is the end. So these were certain signs. And he warned them right away. He said, now you be careful. You beware that no man deceives you. Because he said in verse 5, many are going to come in my name and they're going to say this and say that. But you make sure that you don't swallow every nugget and every sermon you hear as though it's from God because they mentioned Jesus and they had a sincere look on their face. You be careful because there's going to be a flood of spiritual filth in the last days. Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. Seducing spirits and doctrines that are inspired by demons but sound Christian are going to come upon people an easier way, and they're going to follow that. And they're going to be misled, and they're going to be tragically doomed because of it. God even said himself, didn't he, last week in 2 Thessalonians 2, that God would himself, to people who wouldn't watch and wouldn't pay attention, he said he will send strong delusion upon those people, and that delusion would be so persuasive that they would believe it and be damned for it. This is what the Bible says. I cannot stand here this morning and emphasize enough without being overly dramatic and overly doing it, how important it is for us to give the more earnest heed to the things we hear. Not because I said it, but simply because maybe I'm inspired to bring it to you, you look at it. You think about it. You measure it. You make determinations. It's your life. It's your will that's going to have to do it. I'm here to tell you what it says, and that's what I want to do today. Jesus said one of these signs in verse 5 would be false prophets. And the Bible says they will be so persuasive, they will deceive, mislead, Cause to err many, not a few, but many in the last days are going to be talked out of their faith and follow something that looks good enough. Verse 11, he says, and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. Then in verse 6, another sign, 6 and 7, he said, you shall hear of wars and rumors of war. Now see that you be not troubled. Don't be all tore up about it. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and so forth. But he said, 
when all of these nations begin to rise against each other, this is a part of the plan of how it's going to end. These are the steps you, that you're going to see. In our last century, which we were all lived and born, most of us were born in, there were more people killed in warfare, I am told, by the records that I could accumulate. More people were killed in warfare in the last century than any other time in history. The killing of people, the destroying of lives by nations and people more than any other time in history. And we see the turmoil today is in the Middle East when nations that are not stable and whose record of humanitarian good is not good are getting atomic weapons or nuclear weapons or trying to. And the idea that these weapons and they might, I don't know how that's going to work, but these weapons fall into the hands of despot or evil rulers and the people that could be threatened with these things. If you don't obey us, if you don't do this, we're going to drop these on you from North Korea to Iran to uh, probably others, maybe Pakistan. It's amazing how much destruction is now available to countries. And if the wrong people get in charge of those countries through whatever methods or means they can, they have access to all these nuclear things. And they could bring great devastation in that area of the world. And if they could import it somewhere else, they could put it all over the world. There is in this world a kind of tension, as I'm speaking, a kind of fear that the people really don't know what to do about it. And world rulers at this point don't know what to do about it. There's a ruler coming, and he will come very shortly, a world ruler who will have all the answers and everybody will follow him. He'll be called the Antichrist, but he won't come with his name, I am the Antichrist. A good-looking person probably, very persuasive, and the world will look after him because he can give them an answer how they can save themselves, keep what they got, and keep on having fun in the last days. And it's going to appeal to them, and they'll follow him because they don't care where they're from or what they believe. As long as I get mine, I get to keep mine. And we're living in a time in which people want somebody to solve their problems. We're in a time when people want solutions because we look at all the turmoil in the world, in the South, South America, to Europe, to Asia, and the islands of this. There's just so much turmoil, and so many people are harming each other and hating each other. It's a time that has never been like this specifically in history. And it's a time now more devastating than any other time in the world. And in verse 7, he mentioned thirdly famines. Christ mentioned famines. I don't know how much stock to put in the statistics I hear. I can only quote them. I don't know how accurate they are. I don't know who does all the counting. I think I heard yesterday on the radio just driving home that in an advertisement for some a humanitarian group that 16 million Americans will go to sleep hungry tonight. And I think that's 4% of our population, 16 million people. I know it's greater than that around the world because I'm sure in some countries of this world, they're just living, that's all, they're breathing. And they are in famine. And plagues have come. We've had a hard time this summer and they're having one about our crops growing in this country. And we're taking a lot of what we call food and making fuel out of it. That's gonna bring a food shortage then there's this fear of whether the price of groceries are going to go up. Groceries have already gone up. And as far as I know, most of you will eat tonight or eat this morning or you will eat again tomorrow because God said he will supply all of our need. That should take away our fears if we really believe that. But famines are all over the world. And they say that a large portion of the world's 5 billion people suffer. A large portion, people say, suffer from a shortage of food. Another thing that Jesus spoke of in verse 7 was earthquakes. Now, there is a site that I've found in my up-and-coming abilities with the technology of computers. I-R-I-S. It's a site that shows where earthquakes have occurred and where they are occurring in the world, and you can tap the site and different color circles indicate the intensity or 
how long ago it was, and there was a recent earthquake just this week in Iran, and this morning I looked, and there was a big circle in that area. It's just amazing how many earthquakes are taking place in this world, little ones and big ones. We're getting so used to it that most people don't even print it in the news anymore or talk about it much, but yeah, it's just a four-pointer. And just earthquakes everywhere. I'm afraid there's going to be a big one. They've been prophesied there's going to be a big one in the West Coast in California. There's a great fault out there that tremors a lot, and that, that edge of California, they say, will fall into the sea. I don't know. It might be. But I'm just saying we're living in a time in which the more science advances itself, the more they discover these things the more they discover weaknesses in the earth's surfaces or able to predict what's going to happen next, weather patterns or otherwise. And so as technology increases, more and more information comes to us, which is mostly designed to make us afraid and make us more fearful. We were doing fine until we heard that. But it's there. We're living in the day. Because Jesus said it would. He's going to be one of the signs of the end. And then tribulations, he mentioned that as a sign in verse 8 and 9. He said, they will deliver you up to be afflicted and kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Who are the two most hated people in the Middle East amongst the Muslim countries? What two groups in all the world are hated and despised more than anybody else and referred to as the great Satan and the little Satan? It's Christians and Jews, Israel and Christians. And anywhere in these Muslim countries, there are Christian communities that are greatly persecuted. We don't know what persecution is over here. Not in this country. Not yet, anyway. And I hope we never do, but I don't know. I don't know, because I think America is setting itself up for judgment anyway, with all of its laws and its indecency and stuff that it transports to the whole world. But earthquakes and tribulations... Another one in verse 14, he said this one, the gospel is going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. You take this morning, what we're doing here this morning, while I am speaking, the folks in Great Britain or in England are listening to what I'm saying as I say it. But these are the last days. What other time in history could this be done? A missionary can go into a jungle or as Aaron Jai and some of those places where People haven't even been discovered yet. And very quickly impart the truth of the gospel to these people in a language that they can understand. And you can take movies in. You can take videos in. Now they got CDs. And, they, you know, we've gone from the big VCR down to a disc. And it'll get better, smaller than that, I'm sure. And you can transport a lot of information to various parts of the world and with pictures and designs and, and graphics and so forth that people can see and learn a little better from. Instead of just you in a tent or outside of a hut somewhere, you can set up a screen and begin to show people things in their language that they can understand about the gospel that nobody has ever been able to do until this time in history. Notice the words there in verse 14. He said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then what? Now listen to me. I believe this is the Lord. As this gospel is being transported to all the world, the end is about to come. Not just missionaries going out and spending a month or a year or moving their lives to some place, some remote place of the world. But as this gospel goes out, the gospel of the kingdom goes out into all the world, by its various methods and means, as I just said, greater and more accelerated than they've ever been, then he said, when this begins to happen, when you see this happen, then the end is coming. We're living there right now as I'm speaking this morning. The Lord may come before next Sunday for his people. I hope you're one of them, that you escape all this coming because it's not going to be very pleasant on this earth in those days. Now, those are six things that Jesus said. Now, let me point out a couple things that Paul said. These are things that we're more aware of, I think. Two signs that Paul spoke of. Turn to 2 Timothy 3 again. We were there once before. 2 Timothy 3. Two things that I want to point out that he pointed out is godlessness and apostasy. In the last days, 
Let's take godlessness in the last days. With all the gospel, all the churches, and all the billions of dollars spent on the proclamation of Jesus Christ in America, this nation has grown more and more ungodly. Less and less effect on society. By effect on society, I mean that while we are here to make disciples, we as being disciples have a light that should shine wherever we go, where we work, where we live, next door. And this light is a message. As I said Wednesday night, we are living messengers of a living message. We carry that with the way we live, the way we act, that others can take note that we have been with Christ because they can see his influence in our lives. And as we live this life, we begin to proclaim who he is. And others see that, and they ask you a reason of the hope that is within you, and, and so on and so forth. Now, in the Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, and then verse 7. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times, perilous times shall come. Now, here's what you'll see. Here's what we're talking about. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful. Arrogant, like athletes, some of them. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving, full of revenge. Malicious gossips. Ooh, oh, oh, facey bookie. I mean, I take it back. Unforgiving. Malicious gossips. <laughs> Without self-control. Brutal. We've just watched this on the news every month. Brutal. Haters of good. Terrorist. Treacherous. Reckless. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied his power. Always learning, but never able to get it to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this was written a long time ago. I mean, this was written a long time ago. And yet what it said a long, long time ago is describing the time that you and I are living in right now. For he said, in the last days, this is what you're going to see. And I'm sure that as the pen was guided by the hand of God in writing down exactly what God said. I'm sure that some of those things were written. They thought, well, it's not quite that bad. I mean, it's not that bad, but it will be. And God wrote these things for our learning. This is what we're supposed to learn. Men will be so corrupt and so full of themselves. They live for themselves. They deny others. And whatever they can do to advance themselves... Whatever it takes to be what they want to be, they will do it. If you get in the way and they have to run over you, they'll run over you. If it takes pills and drugs to make you happy, then give me my pills and drugs. I don't think there's ever been a time even thought of like today in which drugs would have such a tremendous effect on the world. Not just a few people in countries, but people in every country. Some people just, they live for drugs. The importation and corruption of human lives and the importation of drugs from the, wherever they come from is amazing, just amazing. You talk about famines. When South African farmers gave up their land to the indigenous people and they came in, after all those years of farming and, and feeding, they began to plant poppy seeds because there's more money in drugs than there is in food. And without realizing it, you're killing yourself. You're corrupting and ruining yourself and making your situation far more grave than you ever thought. But it works that way. Sometimes I think that, you know, we're defending a country, Afghanistan, which does more to talk about poppy seeds and, and about heroin and, and the stuff that you make drugs like that from. But these people think this is the only income that we have, and yet that kind of income is what's destroying people's lives. It doesn't make sense. But politics doesn't necessarily make sense either. 
But anyway, he said there'll be this kind of godlessness in the last days. Think of that last part there in verse 7. Ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the faith. Going to church a whole life, never getting the truth. Taking little Bible studies, whatever they can do to be more spiritual than they have been and little studies and so forth, whatever kind of system they align themselves with, it doesn't advance them at all. They simply have a form. It looks good, but it has no power because they don't believe it'll work. They really don't believe that God heals. I know it says that, but I don't believe that. They don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still for today. I don't know about that. They don't even believe Jesus is coming back. Many in the church don't even believe in the resurrection of Christ. These are myths because to talk about supernatural things in a very opposite society is to set yourself up for a lot of questions and fun being made of you. So you just leave things alone like that. You just go with the flow. That's how you survive. But that's what flesh and self does. And that's the big problem in America. Now, another thing that he said, Paul said, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, what you're real familiar with, is that there will be an apostasy in the last days. Many shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4. Now, we're warned. He said that there's going to be a falling away from the faith. Now, they're never going to fall away from religion. I think the faith here is a word defining the right, true ways that God has given his people to live. The faith. The Christian way with all of its tenets and its doctrines and its ways and, and the things that God has established and given to man to live. It's called the Christian faith. We sometimes just call it the faith. And the Bible says the influence of seducing spirits and false prophets and doctrines that are of the devil in the last days will cause people to depart from that to another way. They will see it differently. And those who hang on to the old right ways, the old paths, are going to set themselves up for persecution. And you know it's true. Just like a young lady knows today that if she were to dress modestly, she'd be persecuted for it, and she doesn't want to be persecuted. She just doesn't. I just want to be like everybody else because I'm insecure in what I believe my convictions would hold me to. But I can't do that. And I think that could be true with boys in some area. But, you know, as much as I enjoy watching competitive people in Olympic games and stuff and like to watch it, I deplore the uniforms. I think they are completely nasty. You don't have to say amen. That's what I said. I just don't think that it contributes in any way to the idea of modesty in this world. We're living in an immodest time. But the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, and as it was in the days of Lot, it's going to be like that in the end. And you can't stop it. The way and the designs of man on the way they want to look and what they want to do, the time of modesty and holy. You know, my generation was so dumb to think that you should be married before you have babies. Isn't that dumb? It's just so dumb. You have to be married. What's that? There are a lot of kids that never been to a wedding. They see a lot of babies. They've never been to a wedding. We're coming in a time in which that probably won't even be necessary anymore. They'd be forbidden to marry. I mean, it's the last days. Things are changing. And yet, if you hold to the old paths and you have this rigid spiritual posture before God, oh, you're singled out for adversity. You're one of them or that church or that group or him or them. And yet, the ones that are going to find the favor of God and escape in the last days are those who are willing to do it God's way. Now, that's the choice you have to make. You can either do it your way and... Do it the way the world does, or you can say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be separate and come out from among them, saith the Lord. You can choose to be a modest, God-fearing young lady, a modest, God-fearing, respectful of girls boy, and not align yourself or model yourself after the corruption that you see in the world, 
and the dress in this world or the nasty music, you can avoid all of that because nobody can make you do that. You have to choose to do that. You can come out from that and be separate, be persecuted, be aligned as old-fashioned. How old-fashioned was that? Well, pretty old. But we're going to heaven. Heaven is worth the sacrifice that few are making. Amen? Amen. Now, there are several fulfillments. Now, there are many, many of these. I've just selected a few because I wanted to get them within our timeline today. Fulfillments, a biblical prophecy that we see in the Bible, several things that the Bible itself, Old Testament and New, points to specifically about the end, that as we see this, we are to know that it's there. In other words, we're watching this one. We're trying to watch and take note of what we're seeing. Let's look, number one, this morning, a biblical prophecy of the existence in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 16 of the existence in the last days of a, now this is big, 200 million man army. Now, if our country is 350 million citizens, I don't know how many it is. It might be more, maybe less. But can you imagine any nation in the world that would have an army of 200 million soldiers? When the Ohio State football stadium is completely full, is there 100,000 there? Whew. Now, 100,000 people in an arena... If you've ever seen it, you know, the balloon flies over and they show pictures of this huge round city that's packed, 100,000 people. Now, imagine each one of them having a uniform, a weapon, and training as an army soldier or a naval or, a, or something. In some way, they are a part of the military might of a nation. 100,000, that'd be a lot of people. Now, take 2,000 of those stadiums. 2,000 times 100,000 is what it would take to make 200 million soldiers. Who's ever heard of such an army? But listen at this, Revelation chapter 9 and verse 16. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. And I heard the number of them. It was right. That's what they said, 200 million. There's only one country in the world today that I can think of that have an army that large. And that's one, one of the growingest countries in the world, China. I'm not here to blame China or accuse China or point my finger at China anyway, but I am concerned about them. They have a different philosophy of life. They're not Christian. They have a lot of Christians in China. Some of the great movements in the last century we didn't hear much of were amongst the Chinese. Tremendously aggressive Christian people were the Christian Chinese. They died, they were thrown in prison, they were tortured, still are, because there's something about the communist mindset, or if I may say it like this, there's something so sinister about a socialist of that type, mindset, that Christians have the mark of persecution painted on their backs. But it costs them everything to be a Christian in China. But leaving China out for a moment, 200 million soldiers, what are you going to do with them? Well, let's go to the second thing. Second thing, I learned this when I was in Israel on a tour. The second sign in the last days would be the return of one pure language, Hebrew, back to the Jewish people. You see, when they were scattered in A.D. 70 all around the world, they went here. They, most of them learned Aramaic in the countries they were scattered in. They spoke Aramaic in the time of Christ because they were scattered right after that. And the Jewish people were scattered, as the Bible said, all over the world. They were scattered. They remained Jewish. They couldn't escape that. I think God saw to it that a person who is a Jew will be known and pointed out. They're never going to be non-Jewish. They're always going to be Jewish. 
They were scattered throughout the whole world. Many of them lost their cultural distinctions. I'm sure they lost their tribal distinctions. I don't think it mattered what tribe you were from when you were living in Russia or Spain or Africa or Argentina. They were all over the world. Basically, they lost their language because being scattered, they just learned the language of the country. If you want to function in a country, you learn the language. And then prophetically, God said he was going to bring these people back, Aliyah, bring them back to their country, their great return. And as he brought them back, one of the men that came back at the beginning of last century, in the early 1900s, an immigrant from Russia. He was born as Eliezer Perlman. He was Jewish, and when he came to Israel... He changed his name to Eliezer ben Yehuda. And his passion, his drive, because this is the influence that God had on one man, his passion was to see Hebrew again spoken amongst the Jewish people because they spoke so many different languages and they couldn't even communicate. And when languages are diverse and you can't communicate, it's hard to get anything done or come together. It's just hard because you, you don't know what you're saying. And so this man had such a passion, he was considered in early history, before Israel became a nation, he was considered to be fanatical about this. When he had children, they were not allowed to speak anything but Hebrew. He wrote 16-volume dictionary of the Hebrew words and everything for the people. To, he spent his whole life doing this one thing. One day he and his wife were walking in downtown Jerusalem, and an older man heard him speaking that it wasn't Yiddish or whatever they spoke then but he said what is the language that you're speaking and he said it's Hebrew he said Hebrew is a dead language now the priests use it in their liturgical meetings and with all the feast days and the solemn things that they did in remembrance of what the Bible said they did remember that and they would use Hebrew then much like Catholics would used to use Latin in their service we don't speak Latin but it was a kind of a classy language I guess but anyway, he said, what is the language you're speaking? He said, Hebrew. He said, Hebrew is a dead language. He looked at the man. He said, I'm alive. This is my wife, and she is alive. We are alive. We speak Hebrew. Hebrew, therefore, is alive, the language. And he insisted that his children never speak anything but Hebrew. He and his wife never communed in any language but Hebrew. Apparently, tried their very best to forget any other language they had ever learned and spoke only Hebrew spoke to his neighbors, answered them in Hebrew. And they had to know that they couldn't communicate with him unless they communicated in the Jewish language. And it was largely because of him, probably because of one named Ben Yehuda, that the Hebrew language was restored as the national language to the people. Now, notice in Zephaniah, in Zephaniah chapter 3, and verse 9. If you can't find it, it's in the clean pages. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9. He said, For then I will turn to the people a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Do you see the picture? God brought them back, put hooks in their jaws, as Jeremiah said. The Jewish people scattered all over the world, several million. And there came a time at the beginning of last century, God began to bring them back. There began to be a yearning for their homeland. Zionism, Theodore Herzl and others after him began to proclaim to the Jewish people, wherever they were, we have a homeland. We must go back. God gave that land to us. We must go back. And the world hated them for this. The idea that you're going to go back to a land that's controlled by the Turks and been controlled for hundreds of years, and then the British are going to get it away from them, and you're somehow, come on. But it happened. As far as I can tell, the only thing significant that happened out of World War II was the Balfour Declaration, which gave to Israel a homeland. These people who were nowhere, no bodies, like when they were in Egypt. Who were they? Well, they're called Jews. Well, where do they live? They don't have a place to live. And all of a sudden, God began to bring them back. They had this urge to go back. 
Ben Yehuda, he had an urge to go back to Israel, a passion. This began to spread, and they begin to get together. This is how God puts hooks in jaws. He puts hooks in your heart. He changes your attitude and your direction and your ideas, and, and he puts that in your heart, and that's what you live for because it's what God gave you to live for. And he brought them back any way they could come back. And they came back, and they couldn't speak the language. But they learned it, largely through one man. They not only wanted to get rid of all the vestiges of the ways of other countries, but they wanted to narrow it down to just who we are. We are Jewish people. We're called Hebrews. Our language is Hebrew. And that's how we will communicate. That idea became the mindset of a nation because of one man. But it was prophesied in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9 that there would be a return of one pure language to those people. Now, you're in Zephaniah. Go back towards Daniel. Daniel's to the left a little bit. Not much. Go back to Daniel chapter 12. Because another significant sign here, see, the problem with these things I'm telling you, that they all could deserve three or four messages. And I'm just briefing these things, and then we're going on. But we're watching. We're pointing out things for you to take note of this morning. Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Because here's what's going to happen in the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. This Billy Graham quote here. Did you know that most of the scientists who have ever lived are still alive? Scientists. You know, scientists like you know of a scientist. It's a modern thing that most of those are still alive. Now, a lot of them are old, and there's a lot of new ones coming. Yes, 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 yes. But you look at the knowledge increasing, or man running to and fro. Man has gone into outer space. He's gone to the moon. He has uh, space exploration. There's a space station out there that they can, technology is so precise that you can launch it here, and while the earth is still moving and this is going one way, they can project the path and come to the space station at a certain day, at a certain hour, and a certain time with a machine that is so technologically advanced that it literally flies itself if you push the right buttons. And men are able to do things that we wouldn't understand if the ones who did it explained it to us. It is a time unlike any other time in history as far as knowledge has been increased. In the courts of law today, cold cases are being solved because of the DNA abilities that you can take the DNA left at a crime scene 30 years ago, and today they can locate the exact person who did that. You can find a hair today, and they can take that hair and tell all the things they do with it. I would make a lot of statements, but I don't know if they're true or not. I've heard they can tell the sex and the age and how well that person was. Or they dig up things in the world and find bones, and they can get the DNA off of those bones. I don't know. But we're living in a day in which man's knowledge is doubling up. Well, not too many years ago, in the very late 70s, or maybe in the very early 80s, maybe the very earliest of 80s, a friend of mine out in Wyoming had a computer, and he was so excited because of the amazing things it would do. It had 40 megabytes of hard drive in it. <laughs> See, you are laughing because you can't relate to that. 40 megabytes, that's not even a sneeze today. Because what they have today is terabytes. That's a billion or a trillion. A gigabyte's a billion. Don't explain it. But the vast amount of information that can be stored today in little things like chips, just little things. You can put little things in little places, and a screen can give you a lot of information. You can put the name and address of everybody in the world on an average computer. The name and address of everybody in the world. It's a time unlike any other time. Knowledge in the last days shall be increased. Let me tell you how much has changed. 
you know how old I am. I'm not even 100 years old. You know, well, I'm making a point. I'm not even 75 years old. Close. But in my lifetime, since I was born, since I was born, just shortly after it, radar was invented. We didn't have any radar. Didn't even have ballpoint pens. Didn't even have pantyhose. And for those women who say, well, what did they wear? Considerably more than they do today. <laughs> there were no air conditioners in those days. We did not have air conditioners anywhere, not in your home, not in your car. And you know how hot it can get in the mid-30s. And when the heat wave and the dust bowl came, there was temperatures every bit as high as what you have today. I guess they had global warming in the 30s, and it took a vacation. I don't know. But anyway, we had no air conditioning, had no closed dryers. There was no such thing as a closed dryer. I remember when I was born, there were no refrigerators. We called them ice box. And for years, even after refrigerators came along, and you could plug them in and electrically they would work. Wow. We still call them ice boxes. I did for years. Is anything in the ice box? Well, you know, an ice box is when you put a chunk of ice in the top of a wooden ice box. You put the ice in the very top of this thing in some kind of insulated chamber, and the cool would off of that ice would fall down, and that's as cold as anything ever got. There were no freezers. In my lifetime. Now, today you're laughing because oh, that's so old. It was not that long ago. Again, that was back when, you know, men thought you ought to get married before you had babies. You know, bunnies were rabbits in those days. Closets were where you hung your clothes, not what you came out of, you know. It was just a different time. Poor us. Isn't that sad that we had to grow up in a time like that? There was no instant coffee then. What's no big deal today, is it? I must have been 10 or 11 years old before I remember a TV set. So there was no TV sets that I knew of. They were probably working on them. We didn't have anything like today. And when somebody did have one, everybody who could would go to their house to watch it because nobody had one. And it was just a little bitty screen. And it was Flash Gordon on Saturday morning and Argentina Roca on the wrestling night, and that's all there was. The theaters in our town in those days was the Hayes Theater or the Venro Theater. It showed one movie a week that was on Saturday, and that was the only movie there was a week. There were none on TV because there was no TV. We had to actually play outside and ride bikes <laughs> and have fun like that. We did. That's how we grew up. We even thought if you wanted to go swimming out at 14 Mile Creek, you either rode your bike out there or you walked out there. It was over two miles. I mean, two and a half miles. Come on, nobody wants to walk two and a half miles. We didn't think much of it. Walked out there, had to go down a great big hill to the Boy Scout camp, then walked through the woods back to our swimming hole. A couple of us couldn't swim, so we had to kind of keep an eye on each other. But we had fun. We laughed and cut up and learned bad ways and, and did a lot of stuff. And we walked home. There was a pump. I remember the pump handle on Tunnel Mill Road about halfway home. And we went in that field after where the cows were. <laughs> Couldn't get enough water to drink. Can you imagine poor children growing up like that? We'd ride our bikes. And sometimes we didn't even have pedals, just stems. And they'd wear your legs out if you missed that pedal. But that's all there was. I mean, they cost 35 or 40 cents a piece, and that was kind of high. Knowledge shall be increased. We didn't even have daycare centers or nursing homes in it. People took care of their own then. Times have really changed because self wants more freedom today, wants to do more things. But, you know, even though we didn't have pizza or Big Macs in those times, we actually survived. Can you imagine today, what if you didn't have all these fast food restaurants? We actually ate at home. Actually ate at home. I don't even remember a fast food drive through restaurant. The first one that I can remember, I think, uh, you pulled into a booth and you ordered off a little phone and then somebody came out and brought it to you. And we thought, wow, how naive we were. Us poor souls that grew up so many years ago, back in the darkest of the dark ages. 
And yet today, listen to me, I believe this. I believe my generation was happier than yours. I really do. I believe there was something that was, even though we had our problems, you know, my home life wasn't the best in the world, but I had good friends, the guys I grew up with. You kind of learn from them and lean on them, and they help you. And we actually had fun. And it didn't take money. It didn't take cars. It didn't take events. There were no superhighways. I was in college before I saw a superhighway. I was a freshman in high school before I ever heard of pizza. Times have changed so much. A cell phone I had once was, when it first came out, it was called a razor. And, oh, you got a razor. And a year later, you got a razor? <laughs> that old donkey, that thing here won't even hardly walk. Things are advanced so quickly and so much every year that it's hard to keep up with the technology. But this is all a part of the end. Daniel prophesied it here. You can see it in your Bible that this is going to happen. If you will, go with me real quickly now. Go back to Zephaniah chapter 3 again. In verse 10, if you can find it. Now, you have seen this happen in your lifetime, all of you in here, every one of you, if you can listen. Babies may not. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. Now, the Ethiopians were a part of the dispersion. Yes, they were. In that day, thou shalt not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. This is why they were scattered. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee even them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I believe that the return of the Ethiopian Jews to Israel was prophesied and predicted here. You see, back in 1984, there was what was called an Operation Moses in which the Jewish people went there and got 15,000 Jews in the Sudan. Sudan is not a nice place because of the trouble in the north and the trouble in the south and Islam and so forth. But they went back and they got 15,000 of these Jews who had already fled the refugee camps and it brought them back to Israel. Listen, Israel wants all of their people in the world to come back to Israel. They want them all. They want them to build houses, build establishments. We want all of them. They said, well, the land's not big. We want them all. We want every Jew we can find in the world to come back to their homeland. And these folks were not there, and they went and got them. They tried to escape starvation, and they did. And then in 1991, 20,000 Jews were taken to Israel from Ethiopia because they were Jewish. And in 1999, they begin to airlift the remaining 3,000 Jews back to Israel. And today, they've integrated into their society. They're in a part of the army. They're just they're part of the nation because they're Jewish. And God cared about them, just as he cared about Jews anywhere else in the world. Take, for example, the Russian Jews. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 7 and 8, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall say no more, the Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, because they were scattered there. And the Lord brought them back. These were probably from Russia and the Ukraine and all of that north of Israel. And from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. How will they get to their own land? They make aliyah. They come back. They return. They come back to their nation. The nation has been established. They have a language. There's an uncertain political future, uncertain this or that, but they don't care. They want to come back because God puts it in these people's heart to come back. And there's been a mass exodus of Jewish people from the northern countries. 
I get a little letter from the Christian Friends of Israel that we, Bonnie and I, went on tour with to Israel, and they give an update on those that are coming back. They call it making Aliyah, the return to Israel. So many of them are Russians, and they have to relearn the Hebrew language, and they got people right away teaching them. They got centers that are bringing clothes that are sent over there. They bring them clothes. They bring them furniture. They give them everything they can. Listen, this is your country. You belong here. We want you to be integrated into our society and so forth. I don't know of a country that's been blessed more than Israel. They have one of the highest technological might probably in the world per capita. They have more doctors per capita, more scientists per capita than anybody, anybody. More PhDs per capita than anybody. Uh, very serious, hardworking people. God is causing people to come back. I don't know of any of them being Christian. I don't know of any of them being spiritual, except the guys that walk around in the black suits, and I'm not sure they're spiritual. But God didn't say he would bring these people back to Israel because they were Christian or because they had a heart for God. They're just responding to this urge that's in their heart, and they're coming back. And God's going to get them settled in their land, and then one day there's going to be a time of great trouble. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but it's going to be a time of great trouble. And then, as we've been mentioning here in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16 and 17, you don't have to turn to that. It talks about the technology that will cover the earth and, and the mark of the beast. It speaks of in Revelation 13 about the mark of the beast. Now, there is coming a time. Let me see if I can make this brief. There's coming a time that technology, so much of it, with all these people that are robbing people's accounts, identity thieves, and able to duplicate credit cards and steal credit cards. We've got to do something about that to prevent that from happening. So it seems to be in the mindset of a numerical system that will be invented or brought about in which everybody will have a number, a man-devised system, the number of a man. And this number or maybe the name of the beast, whatever it's going to be, it's said there in that portion of Scripture, if they didn't have the number or the name of the beast or his number, then they couldn't buy or sell. If we can get everybody to participate in this, we can stop drug dealing because that's all done in cash. Because you could trace checks and things down. So the drug dealers, it's all cash money. Well, if all transactions can only be done this way with the numerical system, transactions with a bank by a number, a signal from Something in your hand, if your hand's gone. Something in your head, if your head's gone, you're dead anyway. But all it takes is some kind of a transponder of some sort with a tiny bit of information, your, all your health information, your name, social security number, blood types, everything, doop, over that. And I'm sure there'll be something that you don't know about in the satellite system of this world that can locate you by that beep, and that somebody in some place can touch a button and the computer in your car will stop and be found. But why wouldn't this be a great thing? Nobody could steal our cars. If somebody tried to kidnap our child, they can hit a button and tell us where the child is because they'll put that chip in there in the hospital. Well, that'll go in right away. And you may not even know it, but somebody will know it. Big Brother's going to know where all of us are. But, you know, if that solves my problems, if that makes me sleep better at night, I don't care. I don't care what the Bible says or anybody else. I'm just scared to get up in the morning and people are stealing and scared and I don't want to grow old and lose everything and, and somebody's going to invent. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. As attitudes change and as fears subside and people are convinced that they need such a mark, they'll be easily influenced to take that mark. You know who will oppose it if we're here? I gave myself away. You know who won't take this electronic, if that's what it is, if it is an electronic mark, a signal that's sent to a computer? You know who won't take it? You and me. If you do take it, you won't go to heaven. And if you want to escape, you have to avoid that. Well, how will you pay your rent? How would you buy gasoline? How would you buy food? How would you buy a candy bar? You cannot buy anything without this transaction number, signal. 
which instantly goes into a bank or a system, whatever it is. You're paid electronically. You don't have to carry money around. Nobody can steal your money. You can't lose that. There's nothing of value that you can lose unless you just want an identification card, but that's here. Isn't this a great idea? They put chips in dogs and cats, don't they, to find them? Bow wow. I mean, why not? This is the last days. This is the shift of man's thinkings from another time to a, a new age. And this new age is very corrupt. And finally, if you go to Revelation 11, we'll close. This is way over my head, but I'm going to mention it. It's plans for the one world government, the rise of an anti-Christ and a beast and the system that that beast will have. Revelation 11 and verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy three and a half years clothed in sackcloth. Now, these are the two witnesses that will come to this earth and just agitate the whole world. And nobody can hurt them. You can't kill them. They're sent by God, and this is what the Bible testifies to, until their time is up, and then they will be killed. Verse 7 after they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, these two prophets, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. That would be the corruption that is in Jerusalem in these days. And they are the people... And kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And verse 10, they will think it's Christmas. The only place in the Bible where people sent gifts to each other because of something. Look at this, verse 10. And they that dwell on the earth, on the earth, E-A-R-T-H, the whole earth is going to know this and watch this because of technology. They that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another, just like old Santy was behind it because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. You know how they tormented them? With the truth. They spoke the word of God and unregenerate man was tormented by it. He could not repent. He could only think about it. Because repentance is a gift that God gives. And when he doesn't give it, all you can do is listen. And they were tormented by it. And when they died, they were killed by this beast. They sent gifts to each other. And they went down and got a nice card, bought a nice gift, wrapped it up. Why are you giving me a gift? Because those guys are dead. See, this is the last day. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, I think a part of this system, this in time world ruling system being prepared for a world ruler whom the whole world is going to accept. The whole world. I think behind all of this is things like the United Nations. I still think they ought to put the United Nations into Sudan. Help those people down there instead of helping us so much. Huh. But anyway, or the World Trade Organization or the international criminal courts. The world system today already, these nations of the world and the United Nations already have told the United States and the ambassadors that the private ownership of guns has been ruled out in every nation in the world, pretty much. You cannot own weapons anywhere in the world unless you're in the military and you don't own them, then the government does. But the private ownership of guns is not allowed anywhere in the world, and it should not be allowed in America. Come on, if we're going to be a one-world system and we're going to do this, then we need to think like this together, and you all need to get rid of this stuff. And when you begin to disarm citizens like a lot of other countries that can't do much about despots and so forth, you have to take what's given to you. Will they ever outlaw that stuff in America? I'm sure they're going to try to. And if the law is passed that uh, those who won't give up their farms, somebody has to go get them 
Well, I can tell you this, that the local sheriff and the local police isn't going to come to their neighbor's house and forcibly take their gun or arrest them. They're neighbors. So who would do that? A foreign army. We send our armies to other countries to do things, don't we? Police patrols and stuff. Well, they say, well, we'll come in and do it for you. And they send another army to this country. Will that happen? I don't know. I'm just giving you a scenario. When I watch, I think, if that happened, what would you do? What if the law said you had to surrender all your firearms to the government? Well, what would you do? I think you would have to go get them, wouldn't you? How many of you know you can't take them to heaven? And let me tell you something. You can't. won't work there. Okay. I'm just saying that, you know, you don't know how dedicated you may be to the Lord right now until you're really put to the test. How far are you willing to go? Some, the Bible says, are, are going to die for their testimony. He told one church, he said, they're going to put some of you to death. You overcome, and in 10 days you'll die, and then you'll go to heaven. Well, they must have counted that joy. See, the day we're in, we're being told about the day that is coming. And you have to be strong and courageous to endure those days. And let me leave you with this. Pray. Pray that in light of what your heart is stirring in you about and the difficulty of what you might have to do, pray that you'll be worthy to escape because you'll be faithful and you'll surrender your heart, will, and your ways and all you have to God and that you'll escape the things that are come and stand before the Son of Man. Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you this morning for your word. You said that your word is the truth that will make us free. If there's any bondage, any fears, any things that hold us back or hold us to the world, you've said your word has the power to loose us from it if we'll believe it. And that puts a lot of power in our faith that we really can move mountains and we really can overcome all things if we'll just believe what you said. May a move of your Holy Spirit descend upon those here this morning, those who are watching. And may you bring conviction on your people about what you've said, not what I've said. May we be found preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord, getting our hearts right. As we approach the communion table this morning, we pray that all of our allegiance and loyalty goes to the one who paid the biggest price to set us free, even Jesus. He is the bread. He is our cup. For the high privilege of what we're about to do, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.